If you have your Bibles, could you take them and turn to uh, Philippians chapter 2? We're going to continue our, our study deeper into Philippians. And I'm going to ask uh, Miss Betty Height to come and read for us this morning Philippians chapter 2. She'll begin reading in verse 1 and continue reading till verse 11. So, if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from rivalry or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interest, but also to the interest of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow, in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God our Father. Amen. It's a powerful passage, isn't it? Paul is, really has an ambition to make sure we know the unity we should have in Christ. This is one of those passages, even hearing um, Miss Betty read it again, kind of reminds me of taking a, taking a family trip. And you're going to go you're going to go by, as you take this trip, you're going to go by some particular site that you have to see. Maybe that, that you've seen before or maybe you've never seen. And so you realize you do have a destination, but you've kind of got to go over and look at this thing. Maybe it's the Grand Canyon or maybe it's a particular city and you've, you've got to go by there and, and take that in because it, it wouldn't make sense to just drive on past that without giving some attention to it, even if you have an ultimate destination. I think Paul has a destination, and that is the the coming together of God's people, that God's people are better together. But then there is this massive detour that he takes in talking about Jesus Christ. There are a few passages in all of the New Testament that talk about Jesus Christ exactly like Philippians 2. And so I want us to make sure we don't miss that along the way. But then I do want us to hear actually the point that Paul is driving home The title of this series has been Better Together. Are the people of God really better together? Or can you just live your Christian life isolated between you and the Lord without ever thinking about the rest of the body of Christ? In the last chapter, which we spent some time in last week, Paul had spoken of God's people being together side by side. Those were the words that Paul used. This is a letter, and so when I write letters, I don't really divide them up into chapters. 
and neither did Paul. I'm grateful for chapters and I'm grateful for verse markers. They sure make things a lot easier when we say turn to this place rather than find midway or about 35% through the book. You know, this would be complicated. I'm grateful for the chapters, but let's, let, let's remember they, they are artificial. And so Paul's still talking about being side by side together for the gospel. And so as he, as he does this, he is, he is furthering that point And we even know that by the way chapter 2 and verse 1 begins. It says, so, there's a connection from the previous verses. I think he's calling us to look at the foundation of being together. This is why you should act. You really are side by side. This is why you should act like it. There are some things that Paul says we, we should assume are a reality for those that are truly in Christ. Notice the way he says that, right? So, if there is any encouragement in Christ, if there is any comfort, if there's any participation in the Spirit, if there is any affection and sympathy, well, that word if, the way it's written is actually to tell us not just if, but since. It's assuming the reality. It's like, I, I, I might tell my kids, well, if you want to go over to your friend's house, well, I know they do, then you better clean your room. I'm assuming the reality, I know they want to go. If this really matters to you, if you want to do this, if you want this, then you should act in this way. Paul is saying we can assume these things are true, the comfort that we have in Christ, the encouragement. The comfort that comes from love, the gift, the partnership that we have, the, the participation, it's the same word that you see other, other places translated fellowship, the fellowship that we enjoy in the spirit. These are all certainties that God has, God has done for us. These are realities. If there's any mercy, any affection, any sympathy, this reads less like a textbook and much more like a, like a coach pleading for the players, like, Let, let's do this. Let, let's do this. Let's, let's act in this way. Sounds like a parent pleading for their, for their child's heart, wanting them to do what's right. This is, this is what we can do. This is not just an academic exercise. Paul is like, he, he has a pastor's heart here. He's saying, let's, do, do you not recognize there is mercy, there is sympathy, there is comfort, there is participation in the Spirit, so would you complete my joy? He is urging them. He's not questioning whether there really is encouragement in Christ. He's assuming it's true. You have all these things. So based on that, in verse 2, complete my joy. Complete my joy by being of the same mind. Philippian church, I want you to come together. I think if you were addressing Ogletown, you'd say, you, Ogletown, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord of one mind. He just kind of piles on ideas that are very similar. Paul wants them to be like-minded, a growing realm of things they are coming together on. What does it mean when you, when, when you see that? Complete my joy by being of the same mind. Or when you read like ha having, being in full of cord and of one mind. I, I wonder what you think of. What does it mean to be like-minded as a church? Does it mean we find ourselves agreeing on everything? 
that we all have the, the same favorite color now as we, as we, we begin to have like-minded. We all shop at the same stores. We run into each other all the time. We all go to the same grocery store because we have the same mind. We all like the same articles on Facebook, all of us. We all find the same food. You like that? I like that too. I didn't used to like it, but we're all liking the same. Is that what it's talking about? We all have the same sports teams or we all are reading the the exact same authors. What a coincidence. We're becoming more like-minded. Is that what it's talking about? I believe so. Look at the essence of what it means to be be together. Look at what it's like. This is what it would take. It's that we we are having the same love means that our reflex is love, and, and love is always others directed. So what does it mean? It certainly doesn't mean that we have the, the same preference in food or color or clothing or, or anything like that. It does mean more and more our reflex is the same. We think of loving the other person, turning our attention away from ourselves and to others. More and more, it's like we're like-minded because we have the same Love says, furthermore, that we would be in full accord. It's interesting, that really is just one word, and the word is kind of a compound word. It's it's talking about our souls are just knit together. Our souls have come together. We're we're on the inside. We're different, but we've come together. And I I think maybe one of the best pictures of this would be uh, just from the realm of music where the differences maybe in a note being sung don't have to drive a wedge. It actually can harmonize. So every, every instrument, every voice might be singing a different part, but it doesn't, it is different. It's, it's recognizably different, but it all comes together and blends in a way where it, it is a, an amazing piece of music. The body of Christ, all, all doing things that are different, but blending in such a way. I think we ought to recognize that that godly widow in our congregation will likely play a very different role in our church family than someone that's newly married. But it can be harmonizing. It doesn't have to drive us apart that we're at different stages. We don't have to magnify the differences. We can actually appreciate the differences because when each member of the body of Christ is contributing, there's this beautiful harmonization, the same love, souls coming together. And, and he, he, he describes this as having one mind, one mind, and it's more than just like one brain. It's a mindset. It's a purpose that we have. We have this intentional purpose that holds us together. And that really is the, is the church. We do have one purpose, and that is the, the expansion, the advance of the message of Jesus Christ. This is what we hold together. This is why even, what is it, 50, 59 years ago, Ogletown Baptist Church was formed with this intentional purpose. And that purpose hasn't changed, the advance of the gospel. All of, all of Philippians 1 is talking about preaching Christ and the advance of the gospel. This is what unites us. All these things are showing, while well, we may be entirely different on, on a thousand, in a thousand different ways. We may have all sorts of different hobbies and interests. We're coming together more and more. Paul says, complete my joy by being of the same mind. Oh, this will only happen as people in the body of Christ are actually permeated with humility. 
That's exactly what Paul's going to say. Look at verse 3. How will we ever get to be of one mind? Same love. Valuing other people's contribution. Verse 3, it says, do nothing from selfish ambition. Other translations will say rivalry. Do nothing from conceit. Others might say vain glory, empty glory. But in humility, count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. This would not have sounded normal. It sounds very nice. I mean, this is certainly the way we want other people to treat us. We want them to value our interests. But this would have sounded very counterintuitive, especially in Philippi. So imagine with me, this is a, a, a Roman colony, and there aren't a lot of Roman colonies in that day. And to be a, a citizen in a Roman colony meant you actually have made it. You had some status. You, you were somebody. And, and that status should be recognized. There's relationships and there's a, a pecking order and there's honor. And those that don't receive honor, they, they, have, they have shame that, that's attached to them. And that's the way things operated in Philippi. And Paul comes in just blowing that up, doesn't he? Saying there's something very different about the way of Christ. There are different values. There are different values. The values of any culture, including ours, in 2017, they don't always line up with the values of Christ, do they? There's times where God places demands on Christians where we will look very, very different. Our value system will be very, very different than the world's. Humility in this passage takes shape in a couple ways. And I just want you to think about those, especially in light of verse 3 and 4. I think one of the ways it takes shape is, is in answering this question, like how much do I value where I rank? How much do I value where I rank? And that is what Paul is saying. Have this humble mindset. But that humble mindset will, will largely be identified with how you value where you rank. The Philippians would understand rank, wouldn't they? This colony of Roman citizens. In reading even in secular sources, Philippi was also known as a place where there were a lot of military veterans. If anybody understands rank, they do in the military, don't they? I remember growing up at a, on a military installation. The housing units were divided. The the upper NCOs had their place and the officers and then the, the high-ranking officers had their own where they didn't even have to live with those that were of lower rank. And, and there's a, a distinction even when we would go to the commissary, you pull in and this is officer's parking or this is the general's parking. And all this was, was reminded again and again. I, I can remember even still when I walk by someone in uniform, I'm, I, I'm just trained now. To, I wonder what rank they are. I'm looking for how many stripes or what's, on, what's the insignia. And I, let, let me see a full bird colonel. And I go, that's a colonel. And something in me tells me there's respect owed to that rank. This is just a mindset. Oh, that, the Philippians would have understood it. Maybe you're in an academic environment. Maybe you're just in corporate America where climbing that ladder, who has what rank, who has what authority, who gets what privileges... And there's this counter, counter-cultural message. 
Don't, don't get me wrong, God gives rank. This world runs by that. It's a world system. But how much do we value? So, so Paul would say, do nothing from rivalry or selfish ambition. Trying to kind of notch yourself above, like dividing the saying, where, where does everybody rank in here? Okay, I think I'm here. I haven't quite got to this place, but it should be nice to have that sort of rank. And, then, and there's another question that Paul is driving, not just how much do I value where I rank, but whose interests need to be looked after and taken care of. So what verse 3 and what verse 4 say is, while your interests and your needs certainly matter and my interests and my needs matter, the text assumes that our default setting will be regularly to, to look after our own interests. I don't really have to be reminded that, that you need to take, out, take care of yourself. Make sure you get fed today. Make sure you have a nice place to sleep. Make sure you do a few things that you want to do. Most of the time in my heart, I'm looking after my own interests. There's this selfish, stubborn streak that wants to make sure my interests are taken care of and often can even invalidate the needs and cares and hurts and wishes of others. Do we assume the responsibility of others and their needs? This is humility taking shape. Are we humble people in our actions with others? These questions of like where I rank and being consumed with that rank, being obsessed with where I fit in and, and what benefits are mine because of my rank. This is, this is different than the way of Christ. I wonder, does this shape our relationships at work or at school, life in general? Are we the kind of people that will treat others more favorably if they can advance our rank? But let some person that we esteem kind of below us and we don't have any time for them. How different it is. How different it would be if Newark, if Newcastle County, if the Mid-Atlantic were filled with ambassadors of Jesus Christ that go out and, and they're not assuming they're better than others. They're actually assuming, not, not obsessed with their rank. And, and, and if you press and say, you know, I, I don't know where I rank, but I, I, this is what I try to do. I, I try to esteem others as more important than myself. Trying to look after their needs. What, what would look different about your, your office or, or, or the place that, that you reside in, in a lot of, a lot of the hours of the week? Are there advantages that you have because of your rank, because of what God has given, that you could leverage for the benefit of others? Every benefit that you're entitled to, have you ever thought of that actually being used for the benefit of others, serving others? What if we operated at work on, in a way where things didn't seem so attached to you're valuable, you're valuable, you're not as valuable, you're not as valuable, you're really important, but we had a whole different frame of mind, and that is, I value others. I esteem others more significant. What if we did things where we didn't put our own interests first? What if those in our family saw that? This isn't just demolishing all sort of rank as if the, the kids can tell the parents what to do or there's no real bosses in your world. That, that's not what it's doing. But it is saying you have a position of rank, you have a position of authority. You have a position of influence. Could you steward that? 
for the benefit of others? Or do you say, you know what, I earned it. And I'm going to enjoy every single privilege. And if that means stepping on that person, well, then that's what it means. Or do we ask, do they need encouragement? Do they need help? Do they need patience? And Paul's goal is certainly, you know, I I think he would be concerned about how we live in the world. I think he would certainly be concerned about how we live in the family. But particularly in this passage, he's talking about how we live together as a church. Do we bring a system of ranking even inside the church? In our perspective, is there anyone at church that might outrank you? Or are we obsessed with, no, this is kind of where I fit. How easy it is to think that because, you know, I've spent a lot of time in the Bible and I've been around here a long time and I've been in church all my life, I'm entitled to certain people looking out for me. I'm entitled to it. I rank that. I earn that. And Paul just turns that saying, actually, the, the person that's more Christ-like is interested in where others are, how different this is. In, in my perspective, in your perspective, whose interests need to be looked after, even above yours? See, we live in a consumer-driven culture where it seems like, no, you're, you're in the driver's seat. And then sometimes we could even import that into the church and say, I, I've got to make sure my interests are being looked after. And how beautiful it would be if young families in our church made weekly sacrifices to make sure the needs of senior adults were being met. How countercultural that would be when every advertisement you'll see on every commercial these days say, you just take care of yourself. You just take care of yourself. You just take care of yourself. What if those who had been here a long time went out of their way to make sure the needs of those that are new we're being cared for. It struck me this week. It struck me, I think, just about every time we have new members come into our church. I'd say over the course of probably the last two or three years, almost every, every single time, we have those that have immigrated to the United States of America. This isn't their culture. They've come. Sometimes they've, they've been here a year, two years, five years. What if those that kind of know the cultural drill could, could welcome those into our homes and into our lives so that the best part, the best part of being in this particular part of the world, the best part of their immigration into the United States would be their church family because at their church family, people look after them. People make sure their needs are being taken care of. What if it were different? What if this felt truly like home? I, I certainly could go the other way. I could nurse... Uh, and compile an unwritten yet quite detailed list of grievances where people have not treated me according to my rank. I deserve better. I should have gotten this. And then they did that. And then they didn't look after this. And I really have earned this. I could nurse that and grow bitter over time. But Paul's pointing us to humility. And it would be hard to muster up enough humility to live like this. I might could do that for a week. In my own strength, maybe. To look after the interests of others in, in addition to myself. To esteem others. I mean, I might, I might get good energy for about a week and say, well, that'd be a nice way to live, but I could not live that way for a long time if it weren't, if it weren't for the example and the empowerment of Jesus Christ. 
which is exactly where Paul takes us. So look at verse 5. He tells us, have this mind among yourselves. It's yours in Christ Jesus. Or some translations will say, which is also in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not have equality with God, a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant and being born in the likeness of men and being found in, in, in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even the death on the cross. Look at the example of the one who brings us together. We don't get told to do something without actually having the empowerment to do it. But here we have the example, the example of humility, the ultimate example of the one who lowered, who lowered himself, who, who certainly ranked above every other person and yet, for our sakes, esteemed others more significant than himself, gave attention to the interest of others, demonstrated clearly the love of, of the cross. Paul is not just grabbing an example of like a, 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 a sweet lady in Topeka, Kansas that embodies humility. He is going for it all, isn't he? He's saying, Jesus Christ on the cross. You want to know what should motivate our church family for how we should treat each other? Jesus Christ on the cross. This is a, a beautiful few verses, beginning in verse 5 to verse 11. And Paul... What Paul doesn't do particularly here, he's not writing everything he believes to be true about Jesus. That's, this isn't like a, a, a doctrinal treatise on, on who Jesus is. It's not meant to be just that. He actually says a lot more about Jesus in other places, but there are some things he says very clearly here. And I think this is kind of where you take the detour and say, we've got to look at Jesus Christ. We've got to look at what Paul says about Jesus here. So often we have a, a fuzzy ideas of who Jesus is. Everybody seems, to, everybody seems to love Jesus. As long as they get to make up who he is and what he's like. I don't think Jesus would be like that. I think Jesus would be more like this. But now Paul tells us this is who Jesus is. He tells us first that Jesus existed in glory before he even took on a human nature. Jesus existed in glory before he took on a human nature. Who, though he was in the form of God, before he even came, before he came to this earth in human form. There's a backdrop here of the glory of God, the form of God, the status of God. This is to give us the picture of the pre-existent Jesus as clothed in the garments of divine majesty and splendor to fully appreciate what it meant for Jesus to leave all of this and come to earth. I read a, a, a study of how a lot of evangelical Christians think of Jesus. And one, one thing more and more Christians seem to think is that Jesus is just the most special person God's ever created. This tells us God didn't create him. He was there in the beginning, as John 1 says. He's existed from eternity past. He existed in eternity past in glory before he ever took on a human nature. Jesus existed in glory, but he then humbly stewarded all of what that meant, all of his equality with God. He humbly stewarded this, who, although in verse 6 he was in the form of God, had the status of being God, did not count that equality with God a thing to be leveraged for his own advantage, something to be reached out to and hold it and to hold sway with it. It says he, he emptied himself, he made himself nothing took upon him the form of a servant. 
He existed in the form of God. He was equal with God. Yet what he used that equality with God for is giving, not getting. This is the example. This is, this is why we sing at the cross, at the cross, because this is what Jesus did. That's why we would sing, crown him with many crowns, the lamb upon the throne. This is who Jesus is. He had all this authority and power of being God and he used all of that to, to give, not to get. He emptied himself. He emptied himself not of his person, but of the rank and privileges. He who is God, he never ceased to be God, one writer said. But he humbled himself in the incarnation, coming in flesh. He emptied himself, took upon, the form, took upon himself the form of a servant. Jesus humbly stewarded his equality with God. It's told us something else about Jesus, though. Jesus was completely human. He did empty himself, and he took the form of a servant and was born in the likeness of men. What is that saying? He was born just like every other human. We see the pictures of, like, the, the glowing Jesus, no crying he makes. But actually, this tells us, no, when people saw him, they, they found him to be in human form. Human form. When people encountered him, they encountered a human being. Not just like a spirit who always was glowing, a real human being, had real human desires. You hear what Paul's saying about Jesus. Do we, do, we don't get to make up what we want to think about Jesus. We listen very carefully to what the Bible says about him. He was completely human, not semi-human, not even 50% human, but completely human. As a perfect human being, he was humble before God and became obedient to death, even death on a cross. What's interesting, when you read the word cross, if you were a Jew who knew your Old Testament well, you would know curse is everybody that hangs on a cross. But, but what was interesting, even as I studied, is even in polite conversation in, in the Roman Empire, the word cross wouldn't be used. That would be considered a very impolite thing. So nobody had time to hear about a cross. The Jews say you're cursed. The Romans, when you hear that, it's like, well, that's almost an obscenity to, to even say the word. It was so brutal. And yet here we find Jesus humbled before God, obedient to death, even to the death on the cross. Verse 9 says, Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every other name. There's this descent in several of these verses. You know, he's humbled himself even to the point of death on a cross, but now it goes the other way, doesn't it? Where God has highly exalted him, bestowed on him the name that is above every other name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven, earth, under the earth, Every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. What this is saying is Jesus has been exalted to the highest status. Right now, he has been exalted. He is a Lord in every sense of the word. He's Christ Messiah in every sense of the word. He's been exalted to the highest status. And, and if, you, if you have read your Bible... And if you had read through the book of Isaiah, you would actually find some of this wording uh, of every knee bowing and every tongue confessing. You would find that this is not, it's not the first time it's ever been said like that. 
So if you go to Isaiah in chapter 45 and verse 22 and verse 23, there's a clear indication of who God is. Turn to me and be saved all the ends of the earth, for I am God. But notice what it says about God. God is saying this. God says to me, to me, God alone, every knee will bow and every tongue will swear allegiance. But now, exalted to the same status as God is clearly who? Jesus Christ, according to Philippians 2. They're distinct in their person, but they are the same essence. They're God. God. Say, how do I, how do I understand like the Trinity, God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit? I've been thinking about it a long time. I'm not sure I understand it completely. But I do know when I read texts like this, I say, wait a minute. God has been highly exalted, every knee bowing to him. God the Father. And by definition, there can only be one supreme God. But now we have another exalted where every knee is bowing to him. Every tongue is confessing to him. And it is to the glory of God the Father, not in a rivalry sense. We have God the Son being exalted. Amazing. In these verses, whole books have been written on these particular verses that are unpacking who Jesus is. But, it, but if we understand, so why did, why did Paul take this massive detour to tell us all these important things about Jesus? Make sure we are settled in, in what we understand to be true about Jesus. Why does he take that? It's because there's, an, there's a connection, isn't there, between the saving events of the gospel of Jesus Christ, his, his humiliation and death, and his exaltation to the right hand of the Father. There's a connection with that and the togetherness of God's people. Have this mind in you which is yours in Christ Jesus. The destination is Christ. So the foundation, if, if you have any comfort or encouragement, then be of the same mind. Say, well, that's really hard to be of the same mind. What does it look like to be of the same mind? It means we're humbling ourselves and we're, we're changing our viewpoint on where we rank and whose interests matter. How are we able to do that? We look to Jesus Christ on the cross. This massive detour is all leveraged, all put on you and I having the same mind, thinking together, coming together, striving side by side for the gospel. What are the responses that would be demanded from such verses like this. I think for the people of God, the example of Jesus Christ should stir us to repent of our pride, to humble ourselves before the Lord. It should push us closer together, say we are like-minded. Not just even because we want to be, but because of the example of Jesus Christ and the empowerment of Jesus Christ. We can do all things through him who gives us the strength. But as I read, I have to be frank, I, as I read about this Jesus who, who became obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross, I have to ask a question because I think in a group this size, there may be lots of people who have some vague knowledge of Jesus. You, you kind of know what Christmas is all about, Jesus coming, being born. You have a vague knowledge of, yeah, the Good Friday isn't that where Jesus died, Easter, isn't that about resurrection? 
but it's never become personal for you. It's never become personal to you. That God might be, even right now, opening your eyes to see the truth about Jesus. That what he did on the cross wasn't just the embodiment of doing a lot of nice things for people. But was for you. It was for you to make you right before a holy God. To deal with your sin. To take your place, your shame, your rebellion. To live, to live the life that you might even want to live, but you, but you can't. Because none of us can to die a death that we deserve to die. It was for us. My fear, even as we would get close to Easter and we would hear a story of Jesus being exalted and you, you feel good that he is, like what a, what a, is this a rags to riches story for you to miss the content that it was directed for you, for God loved the world in this way. He demonstrated his love toward you and that while you were a sinner, Christ died for you. And John would say it, that if you believe in him, If you take what he did on the cross, if you believe in that and you turn from everything else, even your good deeds, but certainly from your sin and you turn to Christ, you don't perish, but you have life with him. You have life in him. So where would I start? First steps would be a prayer to the Lord acknowledging, Lord, I I hear this and I know I'm a sinner. And I know you've done Based on what I've read today, you have done for me what I could not do for myself. Today, today you could place your faith in Jesus Christ. Maybe God's been doing a work in your heart for a long, long time to bring you to this point where this will not be another kind of religious season where you go through emotions, tip your hat to Jesus. But today, this season, he will take over your life. He'll save you from your sin. He'll be the person you follow from now on. Would you consider that? Would you consider where God's working in your heart? Can I ask you to bow your head? If the Lord is calling you, pressing on your heart to respond, I'd love to talk with you. Any of the pastors of this church would be glad to talk with you. Maybe even a friend who brought you would be glad to talk with you. But today, could you, would you cry out to the Lord? Praying to him, saying, Lord, I, I, I don't even know what to say, but I know I'm a sinner. And I believe you humbled yourself for me and took my sin. Today, if you'll confess with your mouth and believe in your heart, and God has raised Jesus from the dead. Scripture says you will, you will be saved. You'll be rescued. I would urge you to talk to someone about that. I'll be up front, even as we sing in a few moments. I'll be available afterwards. Oh Lord, would you, would you call those that don't yet know you? May the gospel be clear to them today. And for all of us that have sensed the humility of our Savior Jesus Christ, may that give us fresh energy to live together as the people of God. To humble ourselves even when we don't want to. To look after others even when we want to just look after ourselves. Oh Lord, do this for your glory. We ask it in Christ's name. Amen.